Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a special episode of Visit to the Toyota Motorsport GmbH facility in Cologne, Germany by DailySportsCar.com's Stephen Kilby. Brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Stephen made a trip from his home in the UK using a delightful new Toyota Supra for that drive from the UK to Germany to visit with Alistair Moffat, who starts off our conversations. Alistair, longtime Toyota man, head of communications, among other designations. Next, Stephen moves into a conversation with Emanuele Battisti, head of the new Toyota Supra GT4 project, headed by TMG. We then move to Pascal Vassalon, a great friend of the show, and the WEC paddock, speaking with Stephen about their upcoming hypercar program. And finally, we close with Rob Loipen, Managing Director of TMG, speaking about this rather amazing facility and all that they produce, not only in high-level, top-tier professional motorsports, but also servicing their customers and clients, both grassroots and mid-tier, working your way up towards the highest steps of professional motor racing. So that's a feature we have for you, brought to us once again by Stephen Kilby from DailySportsCar.com. Let's get going first with our man, Alistair Moffat, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Well, I'm inside the Castle Walls here at TMG in, in Cologne, uh, and I've got a chance now to sit down with Alistair Moffat, who's, who's uh, sort of head of marketing and, and communications at, at TMG. Um, and I think before we get into talking about customer racing, hypercar, um, LMP1, you know, the history of the program here, it, it's a good opportunity to, to really get a sense of the facility here that, that, that they have here at TMG, which, which is world-class and has been around for a very long time. Um, so, Alistair, welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Um, I'll start off by asking uh, about the, the history behind the buildings that we're sitting in now, because this isn't, this isn't a new facility, is it? In, no, no, we've been here in Cologne now for uh, pretty much 40 years. Uh, yeah, we moved here in um, 1979 uh, as a small rally team, um, Anderson Motorsport, setting up in um, Porter Cabins on this, this very site. Since that point, the factory grew to accommodate the World Rally Championship team. Probably 20, 25% of the factory you see now was developed during, during that time. Um, you fast forward through to the Formula One time, which first season, competitive season was 2002, but the project began in 1999, dovetailed with the end of the, the previous Le Mans project. And from there, we started to really build a much bigger, more complex facility. In rally time, we were not directly designing and developing the cars. We were, we were the workshop that was screwing the cars together, making sure they worked and dealing with spare parts, that kind of thing. Formula One, we had to design, develop, build a complete car, including engine, all under one roof. So we had to develop and construct wind tunnel, CNC machining, carbon fibre workshops. So we're 30,000 square metres of floor space here, so you can probably take a guess that it's something in the region of 20,000, square metres were, were added for Formula One. Hmm. Uh, and that was completed in 2006, 2007, when the second wind tunnel was um, was finished. Hmm. And since then, obviously, the Formula One project has ended, but these this legacy technology was there for us at the beginning of the WEC project. We've 
we've worked with partners, with third-party customers to enhance the technology. So we've tried to stay on the cutting edge. So what you see here is not Formula One technology from 2009. That's the basis. And since then, has been developed, has been advanced. So we, we try to stay cutting edge in every area. Why Germany? Why Cologne for a facility like this? Originally, we were in Belgium. Um, that was the start of Toyota Team Europe um, in the late 70s, obviously started by a Swede in Uwe Andersen. At the time, it was intended that Toyota Europe would set up their headquarters across the road here in Toyota Alley. Um, that, therefore, made sense that Toyota Europe and Toyota Motorsport would be across the road from each other, creating a... In, within Toyota was the Toyota Alley concept. Everything all in one place, make everything efficient, smooth communication. In the end... Toyota Europe was located in Brussels after we'd already set up here in Cologne and our neighbours across the road now are Toyota Deutschland. Hmm. And you've given us obviously a sense of the scale of the actual buildings here. Um, how many people work in, on working day to day in the facility here and, and I guess what, what was it like in the peak of Formula One era? At the peak of the Formula One era we were 800 or so uh, permanent full-time employees here plus contractors plus 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 so it was you could easily have a thousand people rattling around it was it was a very busy busy time it went down a lot at the end of formula one so in 2009 we dipped down to 150 200 people okay the, the 800 people was earlier in the project in the formula one project not at the end still a lot of people um left we're now around 300 full-time employees plus here and there depending on the different peaks of workload we have contractors in in composite in design office when we need them so there's a core of around 300 people here and it, it does go up mm. up and down according to demand and i guess you, you can run so many different programs out of here and we're going to see today um customer stuff you've got with the super gt4 we're going to see you know the chassis area where where the lmp1 cars are maintained there's a museum in here somewhere um there's two wind tunnels as you mentioned before you can start from scratch from a drawing board and get a program together without really needing to subcontract to anywhere else. Yeah, that's that's the target. That's the, the special magic we bring to, to Toyota globally. Since the end of the F1 project, that freed us to, to do many other different projects, whether that's road car, third-party business. So our eyes have been open to a lot of different projects not restricted only to motorsport so you know we're developing the road car hypercar here we've been doing for many years various r&d projects on the road car side we we build the wrc engine design and build that so we have, we're using the construction facilities that we we set up for formula one customer motorsport as well we can do and these projects all benefit from the very very high level of technology that we we have available so the super gt4 has been on the seven post rig to do some testing and we do that because we can. It's here. That will only enhance it. Uh, we can do projects, big or small, from clean sheet of paper or whether it's just adding uh, performance towards the end. So we offer quite a lot within the Toyota family, and that's, I think, why Toyota TMG has become stronger over the years. Our colleagues in Japan, in other parts of the family, have started to realise the possibilities that we can bring and they realise that they are available mm. unlike the Formula One time where we did one project one project only mm. we now do several projects well over 50 projects a year big and small and we're contributing much more to the wider Toyota family and I think that's, that's making us a stronger company Final sort of question then is, is when we're talking about LMP1 and when we're talking about hypercar 
um, I mean, the heart of the operation is here. How much involvement do the guys back in Japan have? Is is there is there much at all? Yes, you know, this is really a it's a partnership between Cologne and our colleagues in Higashi Fuji. In the same way that all the way through our LMP1 hybrid era, we've worked together as one team with two locations. So powertrain coming from Higashi Fuji, chassis and team operations coming here in Cologne. We're doing the same on the on the hypercar side. So the chief engineer of the road car, hypercar, uh, Kobasan, spent some time here at TMG over the last year or two. He's now back in Japan, has a counterpart here. There's regular, very, very close communication. We have to work together as one team. We now report to one boss, which is Murata-san, who you know, you know well from the racetrack. But he's overseeing the whole project, the whole Gazoo Racing technical development. And he's very much focused that we, we don't operate separately. We must act as one team. The way we can bring performance, enjoyment and excitement to this car is, is not by operating separately. It's by being more efficient. It means reducing timelines. means communication has to be very, very short. So we don't see ourselves as only TMG here in Cologne. We do see ourselves as part of a bigger Gazoo Racing company, and that does put us very close to our colleagues in Higashi Fuji. Well, I guess it's time to head inside, have a look round, and we'll have a chance here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast to sit down with uh, some special guests from, from the hierarchy here at, at TMG. Thanks thanks very much for your time, Alistair. You're very welcome. Let's go and do a talk. So the first guest with me today at TMG is Emanuele Battisti. He's the project leader um, on the, the GT4 program, on the technical side of things, and he's sitting around the table in a boardroom um, here to discuss all things GT4 and all things Supra. Uh, so, Emmanuel, welcome to the show. Um, yep. And I guess I've got to open with talking about the inception of what you guys are doing here. So, the Supra GT4, it's not a concept anymore. It's real. It's raced in Germany. Um, and it's all systems go, isn't it, with, uh, with customer cars? Yep. I think we are, uh, we are nearly ready uh, to go on the market with the car. We have started... Uh, pretty much a bit more than a year ago uh, with uh, with concept design and uh, we started a bit of uh, activity already on the track uh, at the VLN uh, with our Gazoo racing team uh, testing already some component uh, which were then finalized for the GT4. We have done all the testing, we're still missing one extra test in February and then we are ready to go for uh, the market and the BOP test in the beginning of March. So what came first? Was it the Supra as a platform, as a road car, and then you thought, this is the perfect candidate for a GT4 car? Or was it the other way around? Did you think we want to get into GT4 before the Supra came along in, in its current form? I think uh, <clears throat> the GT4 road car is, uh, is definitely a very good base uh, as a road car itself uh, for any racing activity. And at some point, uh, our mother company, TMC, asked us what kind of racing we could do with this type of platform and car. We evaluated a bit the market, what was the upcoming uh, championship, and we thought that GT4 was the best fit uh, for this type of car. And mm. uh, I think uh, it's going to be. And comparing GT4 with, with GT3, they're, they're very different marketplaces, aren't they? With com- almost completely different sets of customer teams in some areas. What do you think of GT4, where it is right now? I think, is as I said before, is is a very good platform because it's uh, at the lower level in terms of affordability in compared to GT3. So GT3 is uh, uh, a market uh, which is, uh, in a way, quite expensive and quite accessible only to a certain amount of customer. GT4, I think, is much more broad. 
So the cost of running this car and uh, and uh, purchasing the car itself is much much lower than GT3 itself. So I think that it will have a much better market, bigger market, and uh, I think uh, is growing. It's still growing a lot. Uh, it has been growing for the last years, but I really don't see uh, a dip in this uh, growing path for the GT4 market because it's expanding everywhere in the world. It's used everywhere in America, in Europe, in Asia. So it's a very international uh, championship to run with. Tell me a little bit about the development of the car itself. Um, you mentioned you've done plenty of testing. Um, has it all gone, gone to plan and gone smoothly? I would lie if I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, in in any in any project there are up and downs, but uh, I think we are we are quite happy with what we have done. Uh, we started, uh, as I say, already in in VLN with some component, uh, and now we have finished all the other testing of the component. So uh, the, the base car itself uh, is already a very very good base for GT4 because the car itself, the platform, uh, the weight distribution already of the of the road car, the low COG of the road car is also helping of course uh, in uh, what we have to do in racing so everything is quite good and uh, we are happy with the result we achieved so far we saw uh, that well the first sign of it was the concept version of the car wasn't it how different is the end product the concept car we did two years ago for Geneva was was really really a concept, and it was based uh, mainly on GTE uh, regulations. So we followed the GTE regulation for the design of that car. In GT4, uh, the regulations are quite more restrictive in terms of what you're allowed to do and what you're allowed to change from the base car to the racing car. So what you see mainly is uh, uh, different bodywork uh, on the final GT4 car in compared to the concept car. Mm. R- remind us a little bit about how the, the VLN races went with, with the car last year, for those of us who weren't following it. Yeah, so um, we started in VLN 9, 2018, where our president Akio Toyoda started to drive the car for the first time. And uh, that one uh, was a four-hour race in uh, October 18, and it went very well, very smoothly, and uh, everybody was excited, especially the president, which is always helping for us. And then the VLN activity followed uh, uh, with a couple of VLN races this year in the beginning, VLN 2 and VLN 3, and then we did the 24-hour of Nürburgring, again with the president at at the wheel of the car. And uh, again, we were really, really happy because I think we finished second in the class and we did not have any single problem for the first 24 hours of the car. So it was quite encouraging for us engineers to see that already the base car and uh, the few modifications we did at that time were already working well. What does that do for for the sales targets uh, for you guys? If you've got a successful program at the Nürburgring, we know the benefits that that circuit has to a program and cars. Once you'd done a 24-hour race and select VLM races and it's gone as well as it did, did that get, get people on the phone? Yes, definitely. I think that uh, this is always helping. VLN is a Nürburgring, uh, is, is a very well-known everywhere in the world. So whatever you do there has got quite good resonance. We started there, but of course then with all the different testing and activity we have done, of course the interest of the the customer increased and now I think we have uh, quite a good uh, and big uh, uh, list of customers that have shown their interest uh, into the car.
And the entire program is being run out of the facility here in Cologne. Um, give the listeners a little bit of a sense of this facility's capabilities, because it is a world-class motorsport facility, as we know. But in terms of running a customer program, um, tell me how that's going to work. As an engineer, I would say that this is the best playground you could have in TMG because you got everything inside the facility, so from wind tunnel, from composites, uh, from CNC fabrication workshops. So we have everything that we can do in house, and a lot of this was done in house. Uh, so all the design and so on was done there. So it's really, the, in my opinion, in my experience, the best facility you could have as an engineer to develop a product. Mm. So. What are the targets um, as they stand now? Um, have you got key markets you want to get the car into right away? Have you got a number in your head of how many you want to get out there with customer teams uh, in 2020? Yeah. So I think in 2020, we will start with the European market, which is the closest one and also the biggest one for uh, for GT4. And then the plan is toward the end of 2020 to expand toward the American market and the Asian market. The target for us is to get uh, a reliable car so the customer can really run it uh, reliably, affordable, and uh, the running cost of the car should be reasonable as well. So these are our main target in terms of what we want to offer the customer. Of course, not forgetting the performance of the car, which uh, needs to be on par with the others. But uh, with GT4, everything is regulated by the balance of performance. So, And I think the balance of performance from SRO is working very well in in order to be able to keep the performance of all the cars throughout the championship quite uh, Stable. Hmm. Does does this car have a future? For instance, in like uh, VLN having its own class, like we saw with the GT86. I mean, that that got a lot of GT86 race cars out there. Is is that the sort of thing you're looking at? Uh, we will homologate the car in in VL in uh, in GT4 with SRO, but then I know that, for example, in VLN, this car is also able to to run in. Uh, in SP8T, so a slightly different class than SP10, where the GT4 cars are running. But uh, our main target is to develop this for GT4 market. Tell me about the Asian marketplace. Because obviously, for Toyota, it's got to be something that's aspirational to have plenty of these cars out racing in in Asia. But what we've seen, I guess, so far is that the GT4 marketplace is very new and it's growing rather slowly because um, GT3 has taken off. I guess. Do you feel that that's a real opportunity for you guys? I think so, and uh, I think having uh, having this car, which to be honest looks quite attractive uh, to customers, I think it will help uh, to grow the market also in Asia. Of course, uh, the Asian market always had their peculiarity and their special championship and races over there, but uh, what I can see is that uh, GT4 is picking up more and more in different championships in Japan, in Malaysia, and so on. So I think uh, having SRO pushing for those markets will only help us manufacturers to sell more cars there. Mm. And we know Toyota's got a big recognition in, in a market like North America. USA's got plenty of races to race at GT4, and pretty high-profile ones too with, with, with GT4 cars featuring on the IMSA package. There must be a desire for you to sell plenty of cars into that market as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the US market is definitely the next big one uh, after Europe. Maybe it could even be bigger than Europe for the Supra. We will need to see. Uh, again, uh, we are happy with uh, the development that GT4 market itself in racing is taking in America because I know that SRO now, they are also introducing more races, more championship west and east coast. Uh, so 
is definitely going to grow there. And Supra, I think, has got a big name in America from the past, so I'm pretty sure it will be a big market for it. How far into the future are you looking um, with this customer program? Are you thinking you know, aspirationally that you would like to see a, a range develop where, where you've got GT3 cars as well out on the road? Obviously, we, we know Lexus have a GT3 program, but that's what taken a bit of time to take off i guess um but are there you know down the line future projects already in the works uh, this is something that we will need to wait and see uh, i think with this project we are we are starting properly let's say some customer motorsport uh, activities within the toyota family and uh, i think this will take some time to grow uh, but our aim is to grow in the same way as other big manufacturers are doing with customer motorsport so I think we will need to wait and see for this. What's your capacity, not only just for, for the amount of cars you can produce, but also for what you can do in terms of customer service? Customer service in customer motorsport is obviously a huge a part of this. Yeah. Um, will you be supplying factory drivers to customer teams? Will you be you know, helping them when they're out testing, things like that? What, what sort of packages are you offering in that, in that front? Yeah, at the moment we are all discussing uh, what, uh, what package we will, we will put in the future there. But of course, as you say, Customer support uh, is a key in customer motorsport. So we have done our analysis. We have done uh, our uh, searching of what the others are doing and what uh, what we should do uh, from our side. So we are at the moment planning everything. We are planning to have for sure technical support at the track with our engineers, uh, supporting teams in terms of uh, setup, uh, in terms of everything. And of course, uh, we will have uh, uh, spare parts uh, available for uh, for the, the customer at the truck itself. So this should be on par with uh, what uh, all the other big manufacturers are doing, and we try to do slightly better than the others. And once you get the cars out there further afield beyond Europe, will that require you to set up bases for, for customer racing in other regions, or will you continue to run all the customer support out of Europe? To say we um, here in TMG is the headquarter where we have developed the car and where we will uh, uh, follow and support mainly the European customers, and then uh, we will partner with uh, other Toyota family uh, entities like TRD USA. We'll follow the customer in the US market, and TCD in Japan will follow the Asian customers, mm. and us being the main uh, hub where we can further develop car or take care about technical problems which we may find uh, around the world. Before I let you go, one more question is, how many of these cars currently exist and, and how many in, in the foreseeable future are you planning to build? Existing, uh, we have our test car and our marketing car at the moment, which we have been using throughout so far. And for the future, I hope to build as many cars as uh, our production can support. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time, Manuel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, the next guest that's with me now is uh, Pascal Vassalon, the technical director at TMG. Um, we've talked about GT4, and now we're going to sit and talk about hypercar. So much excitement going on in the background, not only here at Toyota, but we've obviously got other programs in the works. And I think it's safe to say everybody's flat out getting, making sure we're ready for the first race of the season. Um, Pascal, welcome to the show. Um, the starting point has got to be the status of the program. Um, there's so much talk about timescales and when we're going to see the cars, how ready everyone's going to be. Where do Toyota stand as, as we approach the start of the 2022-2023 season? Or 20, sorry, the 2020-2021 season? 
I guess there are many talks about the schedule because uh, we have put a lot of effort into the regulations and um, the period during which we have designed the regulation uh, have been significantly extended compared to a normal uh, regulation elaboration period and we ended up very late. So the, uh, we can say at the moment that still some elements of the regulation are not finalized Uh, key elements like the euro regulation are signed off since only one month or so. Uh, so definitely in many areas of the car we are uh, running late, not because uh, we were delayed by other programs, but just because the regulations were were not uh, fully finalized. And now we are, we are uh, pushing ahead, we are pressing ahead. Uh, from our side... Uh, we are finishing at the moment uh, the monocoque release. Mm -hmm. uh, suspensions, all this is in good way because it was not too affected by the latest regulation modification. So we are uh, on a reasonable schedule from suspension side. Monocoque is borderline. Uh, then what is really critical is bodywork because of the, the delay in the aero regulation and even more critical all the... Uh, electric and electronic mm. items where we still have a few clarifications pending. So how long have you actually been able to, to work on the car? When was the first point where you had enough in terms of regulations finalised that you could actually begin working on this project? That's a difficult question because in fact we had really started um, last year. You may remember that Uh, a first set of regulation has been signed off by the World Council in December 18. This first release of um, regulation had been discussed and elaborated during one year. So during that year, we had started some uh, some heavy elements, uh, heavy developments like, for example, G engine, according to these regulations. And then, a few months later, so it means February 19, uh, the regulations have changed significantly direction. Essentially, with the introduction of a new, uh, let's say, road car, hypercar option, which has uh, needed adaptation to the global package. Uh, and one of the significant adaptation has been to increase the engine power target and to increase the weight. And on this item, for example, the engine, uh, yeah, we have suffered from this regulation change because we had started our engine based on the previous uh, power target, which was five, 508 uh, kilowatts. And then in the second release of regulation, it went much higher to 585. Mm -hmm. So we had started a bit too early, I would <laughs> say, uh, on some items. Uh, just to say that we were ready, we had... I would say, our uh, resources in place. So we have been starting as soon as regulations were signed off. Mm. Unfortunately for us, there has been a change to the regulation which were signed off in December. So now, since February, we are realigned on a new direction. And since then, every time one chapter of the regulation is closed, we go ahead and we, uh, we develop. How pleased are you with the final product in the regulation? I know we're still at the point where there can be modifications but it, 
it comes across as extremely open, doesn't it? You, it's, you could bring most, <laughs> most combinations um, when we're talking about chassis and engine and they will make sure it, it, it can compete. Are you, are you pleased that that's the direction they've gone down? We are pleased with the regulation in the sense that this set of regulation is bringing competitors because before all what we need are competitors, high-level competitors, and at the moment clearly this new set of regulation uh, is bringing competitors. We have seen already Aston, we, have, uh, we had um, uh, committed to, uh, to be present next season with Aston already uh, within Le Mans uh, in June this year. Now we have Peugeot who are committing to join in 22-23. So definitely, yes, we are pleased with these regulations uh, in the sense that they are bringing competitors. Are we completely pleased? No. Because clearly a balance of performance is not what we were dreaming about. Uh, nevertheless, at this moment in time, this is what is needed to bring competitors to the series. So, mm. welcome to balance of performance. Mm. So, you'll be bringing a prototype that's hybrid powered to the party. We know that Aston are going down a different route. They won't f- have hybrid power in their car, and it's going to be a road car based chassis. Surely, at least on paper, what you're doing will give you an inherent advantage. Do you, do you feel like just, just having hybrid power alone, and especially if we look at what we've got currently in LMP1? There is an advantage just from having a hybrid-powered car. Do you, do you feel like that will translate? So the, there is a lot of effort and resources from the regulatory body put into making an extremely good balance of performance. So it's a, part of it is taken from the GT balance of performance, but in Le Mans hypercars, we will go several steps further with additional measurement in the cars, uh, drive shafts, in, instrumented drive shafts, and so on. Just to say that the BOP, the balance of performance, will be extremely accurate. So, in fact, whichever regulation option you select, uh, based race a car based on a road car hypercar or a pure prototype, hybrid, non-hybrid, all cars should be really within a very uh, small performance window. This is the known target of the balance of performance do you feel like that i mean it's so early isn't it but the performance targets that they've banded around and we've obviously seen p2 cars are going to be slower to make sure that that the hypercars are still up the front do you do you feel like straight away once we get to the first rounds of the season that, that the performance levels that we're hearing about will actually be possible According to the simulation we are doing, we are on target. Uh, it means we should be in the ballpark uh, which has been anticipated and based on which LMP2 are made a bit slower. So, of course, during the life uh, of the car and during essentially the first development months, we will progress within this performance window. But we should reasonably quickly be in the window. When we see the cars hit the track, just... How cutting edge do you feel they'll be? Because we've seen with the TSO 50 um, and the development that that's had and the TSO 40 before and the 30, it's, these are some of the most incredible flagship motorsport, motorsport product we've ever seen. Uh, now you're developing the new hypercar. Um, is, is it going to be at that level? It should be reasonably close, of course. One of the targets of the regulation is to achieve significant cost savings for uh, for the teams and for the manufacturer. So 
for sure the cars and their development cycle will be less expensive than it was at the LMP1 time. Nevertheless, uh, from our side, we still intend to put significant uh, technology into the car because Toyota goes racing, and especially in the top category of endurance, to develop technology and to showcase technology. So definitely, yes, we, we will see attractive and high-level race cars in this category. Will there be much DNA from the TSO50 in the hypercar, especially when it comes to things like the, the, the hybrid hybrid aspect to it? Yes, um, simply by the fact that regulation being late, we have had to carry over uh, or to stay reasonably close to many of the concepts of the TSO50. So uh, there will be a really a, a strong link between our new Le Mans hypercar and uh, TSO50. Uh, nevertheless, especially for the hybrid system, it has been a full redesign because uh, the system which we target now is totally different compared to the one we had uh, in, in the TSO50. So uh, knowledge transfer, best practice, of course, but the system itself is different. And budgets, I was going to ask you about budgets, and you've already mentioned it. Um, now that everything's in full steam ahead, do you feel like that they've achieved what they, what they set out to in terms of reducing the level of budget? Because I know that the figures we heard certainly earlier this year um, I've got to say some people thought they were maybe, un- maybe unachievable but but now now that you, you know what you know is, is that still going to be possible? I think we can only talk for ourselves for sure uh, our programme is now making significant savings and uh, uh, the total budget we are going to uh, to use for Le Mans Hypercar is significantly lower than LMP1 so in that sense uh, target is, uh, is achieved yeah. I think from talks I've had in in the last month or two that the, the target from your side is is going to be to to see that car make its first rollout in July next year. Is is that still on track? This is still what we are planning for. All our schedule have uh, a strong deadline beginning of July to have a build up complete. Do you, do you welcome that as a challenge because you're going to have to fit a huge development process in a very short space of time before the start of the season. Yeah, we uh, we still believe it's feasible, critical as well, yes, because it's just the shortest development cycle we ever had to uh, to put on the, on the track uh, a race car of that level. Mm. So it's definitely difficult. Is, is there a testing plan currently? Do you know what, what where you're going to go, how much mileage you aim to achieve before we get to, for instance, yeah, the prologue at Silverstone? We, we have already planned all our testings between... Uh, uh, the rollout beginning of July and, and the prologue and the first race, of course. We have already planned that. And before track testing, we will use, I would say, our uh, usual processes, which consist of uh, testing elements of hardware in isolation on rigs which replicate the environment of the, of the car. So we will have, I would say, we will use our usual uh, so-called model-based development processes to, to speed up uh, the validation of... Um, of the development we are doing to make sure that when we hit the track, uh, we can immediately go for a test session and not for a debugging uh, exercise. The cars that we see at the track at Silverstone, I assume the plan is still to have two cars on the grid for, for the first round of the season. Will they be the cars that have been out testing before then, or will you have? do you plan to have te- separate test cars as well? Oh, it will be essentially the, the, the cars which will be uh, rolled out in... Uh, in July, and then with obviously some uh, some parts changes according to mileage, but essentially yeah, it will be the chassis which are uh, 
uh, which are planned for the for the rollout. Is it almost a relief when when the calendar was announced? And I'm sure you probably probably know about it a little bit earlier than us, but that they've delayed the start of the season quite significantly, I guess, to to what we had this year because that gives you a little bit of extra time, doesn't it? I think everyone understood that uh, the timing was critical. Uh, we needed a bit of time uh, between a feasible rollout and the start of the season. So, yeah, definitely the, uh, the season uh, calendar has taken this into account. Moving prologue and the first race as far uh, as possible towards September. Yeah. How much of a challenge is that prologue going to be when you consider how shortly after that the race is going to race weekend is going to begin because um, I guess there's not a lot of time between the prologue and the race meeting to to get any work done if there's significant fixes that need to be made to anything hopefully we will have detected critical issues earlier so that we have a bit more time uh, now the prologue is essential in order to check all the FIA systems which will be uh, in the car in order to allow the policing of the regulation. So, uh, and normally these issues, we should be able to manage them within a couple of hours or, or days. So the prologue is made to uh, check all the mandatory uh, equipments from FIE in the car. Mm. We should not need the prologue to, to, to debug the car itself, let's say. Mm. And- and then I guess there's also the added benefit later on is that you can take the cars off Silverstone and you do have a little bit of time before we go to Monza, not going straight on freight. Not so straight to overseas, yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, in terms of logistics and planning, that's another big benefit, isn't it? Yes, this is welcome to, uh, to stay a bit longer uh, on the European side before uh, shipping the cars overseas. So this is as well a good management of the, of the race schedule to make sure that we have some time to uh, to fix new uh, new cars. Yeah. Mm. Hypercar is a formula. We we've seen Peugeot also announced, as we mentioned briefly before. Um, at your level uh, in, and with your level of involvement in this, that must come as a huge bit of positive news because I know it's it's a while away and it's it's not for season one, but that must give you guys a bit more confidence that this is a formula that's developing and it's not just going to be a season or two, you know, a bit of a one-hit wonder. It's, it's got legs, hasn't it? Definitely. It has been an extremely good new. We have been positively surprised as well by the uh, when the, the announcement came. We were expecting a decision but a bit later, so it came as a very good new. And yes, it shows that the series has momentum. And obviously, with now two, three uh, manufacturer committing, we expect that some others will... Uh, will get interested. So definitely it has given a very positive momentum to the Serie A. big burning topic is is clearly the convergence talks between the ACO and the FIA and IMSA about bringing um, DPI 2.0 and hypercars into a common rule set, which means they can compete together. First of all, what's your thoughts on that happening? Would you welcome that? We welcome anything which would bring more competitors, more high-level competitors uh, to race with us. So, yeah, definitely we would welcome this. At the moment, uh, the Le Mans hypercar regulation combines two regulation options, prototypes and road car-based hypercars. Why not include a third option, which would be based on DPI, and have a balance of performance managing the three options? It's something which could be possible. Do you worry that it would further muddy the waters when it comes to balance and performance and makes it just an, 
an incre- it's going to be an incredible tough task as it is, but to, to to get all three formulas effectively working together at once and making sure that nobody's at a massive disadvantage is going to be tough. Are you you in any way worried that they won't be able to achieve what what they think they can aspirationally? I think it's now well known what is required to have uh, a good and accurate balance of performance. We know very well what is required. It's just about putting it in place. For sure, uh, the baseline cars must have similar performance profiles. And then they are very elaborated processes which will make the balance of performance correct. So I'm not worried about that. It's all about bringing all the regulation options in a similar ballpark of performance to begin with. And then the final steps are straightforward. And I'm guessing you wouldn't look at, you know, the potential to, to design a car to DPI and run it in the WC. You wouldn't believe that that would be a better option for what your program is, would you? No, at the moment, it's just not possible. Mm. Uh, simply because uh, some elements of the DPI regulation would not allow to race in WEC. So at the moment, as it is, it's not possible. It needs some convergence before. How close do you think we are to it? Because I've spoken to plenty of people and, and the general consensus is, it's never been closer than it is now to it happening. And, and there is a bit of a window of opportunity here that uh, I guess many people think they, sh- they should take advantage of. I'm sure there is a will to get this convergence. How close it is, I'm not the right person to to it because I'm not part of the discussions between ah. IMSA and, uh, and WEC. So uh, I know that there are uh, really clear wishes to converge. How close we are, I cannot tell. Would this program value the opportunity to be able to race their car in IMSA? Is, is that, you know, I know that America's obviously a big market for Toyota. Um, so the potential for, to race at places like Sebring, Daytona and Petit, in addition to what we have at WC, you, you would look at that, wouldn't you? Of course, of course. It's one of the benefits of, uh, of a possible convergence. Mm. And looking further forward than convergence and into, let's say, 2024, when we've got zero emissions coming on, um, we know that there are, well, from what PFE has told me, there are about seven manufacturers who are actively taking a look at this um, do, do you look at what, what they're trying to achieve with zero emissions and what they're trying to do with hydrogen and, and look at that in a positive light, do you think that this is the right time to, to start thinking about it? We are part of the seven manufacturers so definitely we look at it attentively So so where does hydrogen fit in Toyota in terms of its future vision how, how important is hydrogen technology to, to what you're trying to achieve? Obviously hybrid, uh, hydrogen technology is extremely important for Toyota, Toyota has been pioneering this technology to the point that Toyota has uh, published some patents a while ago to to speed up a bit the development uh, all around the world and speed up the, uh, solving all the problems related to, to hydrogen, the, the supply of hydrogen and so on. So uh, definitely Toyota is uh, interested and in pioneering hydrogen technologies. Uh, when will it be relevant for racing is still to be seen. But globally, Toyota is very positive about that. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined by Rob Loypen, the Managing Director of TMG, for our final interview of the day. We've looked at customer racing with GT4. We've looked ahead to future projects with Hypercar and, and beyond uh, with Pascal. Now it's time to look back, because um, while we're halfway through the season in the WC this year, we are coming towards the end of the Hypercar era, and... And I guess it's, it's, a, it's a good time to reflect because there's not going to be many opportunities coming up to, to get any length of time with somebody like yourself, Rob, who's been a part of this program since the very beginning. Um, so welcome welcome along to, to the show, Rob. And we'll start by getting your thoughts on 
your general thoughts on on Toyota's LMP1 program, which obviously dates back to 2012. What's what's the emotion like there? Uh, big ones because we went up to we went through a lot of ups and downs. Uh, starting to develop the program where we say in the beginning just before the first race we had a crash which caused uh, a damage to the monocoque so we could not take place uh, take part in, in the spa race and then we moved on to we say the first race in the mall where we were surprisingly ahead of the audis until uh, we had a crash uh, or two crashes one crash where we had a quite uh, yeah serious injured anthony davidson coming out of the car and later on by the restart after this accident we had a touch between us and what was the black car we had at that time yeah, the delta, delta wing uh, which caused us trouble and being one and two or nearly one and two in the race to be yeah we say retiring after i think totally of 10 or 11 hours in the race until that we have yeah won the championship in 14 and won two times le mans 18 and 19 uh, and we say also we have had another down to 2016 and even worse in 2017 as we were competing against Porsche with uh, a very, very strong car, Le, Le Mans lap, lap record holder. Uh, and suddenly, uh, yeah, we did everything wrong what we could do. And uh, instead of being a, a one to maybe finish it on the podium, we were nowhere. <laughs> and that we say so it, it has been a project with a great memory of, of experience uh, on one side uh, of be having victory and having defeats uh, but also uh, understanding that uh, yeah this team has grown together over ever since and heading to a new area a new era uh, which is called uh, Le Mans Hypercar so it's yeah uh, uh, history which we're going to to write into the future and uh, it was a great great experience and it is still you've been here a very long time you predate um the LMP1 program. Tell me about the early days of when it was all coming together and and what that was like. Because I don't think back then we had any idea how significant hybrid powered P1 cars would become. No, we can go back into the Formula One area where we already start to introduce hybrid at that time, and it was stopped in 2008, um, and it came back much later. But th- this project came together after our re- uh, withdrawal from Formula One. Uh, we have. I investigated in various opportunities to uh, uh, to deploy our activities into motorsport or into uh, road car R&D. Uh, and we say we understood that in Japan, uh, under the responsibility at that time of Murata-san, uh, there was a project to we say make a hybrid racing car doing and competing into a 24-hour race, which they have done and they have won. And then we say Kinoshita-san, our president at that time, was connecting to Murata-san and they have started to uh, discuss with ACO to make hybrid car, oh, sorry, hybrid cars uh, eligible to, to start in, uh, in, in in Le Mans. And based on this decision, based on this work and this thinking from our Japanese colleagues, uh, we say hybrid power was allowed to in, in, uh, to be introduced. Um, we started then to work here in two thousand and ten at the end. Uh, on an LFA for Le Mans GTE and this project was very very quickly changed in working in a Le Mans uh, P1 so in an LMP1 car with hybrid power Uh, then we had a visit here of the man in Toyota who has uh, developed the first Prius hybrid car uh, Uchimada-san who still is um, the the, supervisor of the board and uh, 
and chairman of the supervisory board, and we say he in instigated that he wants to see this car in Le Mans, uh, or this powertrain in Le Mans racing, and that was in 2011, and he also said, we don't, I don't want to come with one car, I want to come with two cars. And then the project, November 2011, really took off, uh, and we got, or we started really to collect all the resources we needed. We had Orica involved uh, with David Flory as the technical director to support us in all the activities, uh, and Uktushanak also to teach us about uh, endurance management, uh, how we do this. And from that time on, was yeah, these two teams, these two companies, supported by a motorsport division in Japan, started to create uh, the Toyota Le Mans history since then. And uh, it has been a tough project in all circumstances because uh, we never had the feeling that we have enough budget to put these cars on the road in the way we would like to do but that was the struggle which made it very interesting and to look for solutions which are not everyday solutions so uh, really very very intensive and uh, interesting project which will continue also in the LMH, LMH regulations for the future How tight was it and how challenging was it that first year to get them on the grid? So, from my well, from my memory, once once Peugeot had announced that they were leaving, they kind of fell on your shoulders to keep the world championship afloat at the very beginning, didn't it? Yes, it did. We say the the leaving of Peugeot took us by surprise. We also then were immediately requested by WEC management and ACO if we could step in. Uh, we said we will try. It was extremely tight, and uh, we should be the first race should have been uh, 2012 uh, Spa, and then I was on skiing holidays. I got a phone call uh, from uh, Paul Ricard that uh, we had a crash and that the monocoque was damaged, and this was. I think two and a half, three weeks before Spa, so end of March uh, or mid, no, the first, the first part of April, and it meant that we could not race because the car was not shaken down properly. It was no mileage on the car because we had to stop the project in that moment and to review what happened to the monocoque. And we were not race ready, so we have said no, we will not go to Spa. We go then. I think we went to uh, Le, not Le Castellet, the other French. Manicour to test the car again and that was I think a few days after Spa race took place Audi at that time had to do it alone and they say they did we went passing the circuit we made some pictures and mm, then I we continued the shoot, shoot and the car right. was, was say at that time we said we don't go with, with, with a car which is shake down which has done a proper test so we went uh, to, to Manicourt that went quite well and then we came to Le Mans yeah. with Le Mans we came also in different cores as expected and we, until Manicourt we tested with red and white and then we came with blue and white blue was the hybrid color um, so yeah that was a very intensive area of, of working together here in, in order to get it done as we were at Le Mans, our first race, it was an extremely tough two weeks there because the car was not, say, tested to at the extent of Audi has or could have done. The car was very immature on the mileage. It was very immature uh, and on the circumstance of a 24-hour race. But it was the first and the best test we have ever done. Um, I think uh, we had some very, very serious situations. We took, we say, also quite some surprises as we uh, put the th uh, one car on, on third place. I think it was uh, with Nicolas Lapierre, car number seven. seven. Um, and this was a sensation for us. 
Yeah, and then we went into the race, and there we were surprised until, we say, the accident with Anthony Davidson happened, and uh, shortly after Kazuki was uh, touched, or Kazuki did touch the Delta Wing, and yeah, it started to go into another way. Nevertheless, I think from our experience we had in Le Mans was a big motivation, and I think this first race we won in Sao Paulo mm-hmm. in the same year, and we did Fuji also as a win, so it was for us an extremely successful year if we look at from hindsight. Mm-hmm. If you look at, at the moment where it was in Le Mans at that time, we really enjoyed it to be there and we thought whoa we do much better as expected Mm. and that was a very strong motivation for the team the years following were then a bit more difficult with say uh, 2014 2013 where from our point of view we won some races but we really could not challenge the power the power of Audi they had in 2014 I think we had a a great race uh, or a great year with starting again a great race in Le Mans making mistakes on uh, car number two yes or car number one car number one made a mistake where early in the race due to heavy rain we lost the car uh, or had to come into pit uh, say uh, that was not good and with car number two at the time we were no it was car seven seven and eight car eight eight was yes Uh, sorry to correct this in 14 we didn't we were not world champions so number one and two were not there and car number eight did crash early uh, but finished the race on second A third? Yes. Uh, a third. On the and podium. On the podium. And car number seven did stop at night, leading the race comfortably because of a small connector causing a fire in the Monaco. So that was the first heavy say, uh, incident, not an accident, an incident Kazuki had to take. 2015, we were nowhere, simply because we missed uh, the turbo area. Our package was not, com- was not competitive. And this was a very interesting year, because after Spa-Le Mans test day, we decided to go for a new engine. And this engine then should be on the car in 2016. And this was for us say an extremely intensive area at the time between TMC Motorsports Division and us here in order to come with an engine or with a powertrain which would not only see a new engine but also a new battery hybrid system and uh, that make, uh, made us much more competitive as we expected to be in the first races we were leading in Spa uh, until both cars uh, did retire due to an engine failure, which we corrected quickly. And we were leading Le Mans until three minutes before the finish, I think. On And uh, the number, whatever car was, I don't know, eight was on second, no, eight was leading, and car number seven was on se- uh, third place, and in between us there was a Porsche. And three minutes before the race was stopping, everybody was already preparing, at that moment, I, before the incident happened, I was requesting the staff in the pit not to start celebration before the end of the race. And unfortunately, we had then on our headsets Kazuki screaming, I have no power, I have no power. Uh, maybe one of the most spectacular or emotional moments in, in motorsport. Uh, for us, it was uh, a very, very difficult moment to accept uh, and also how we did anticipate in that uh, in that situation uh, was from my point of view uh, yeah we didn't trained enough to anticipate because there would have been some measures how you could have get 
Kazuki going, uh, maybe not with the same speed, but maybe or likely across first on the finish. So it was a good learning curve for the team. It was uh, a very emotional moment. We were the winners of the hearts or whatever you call this. For us, it was one of the big de- biggest defeats we, we ever had. Or for me, it was one of the biggest defeats we ever have had because we were so close and we should have really closed and taken that victory. But 17 was getting worse than 16 because 17, we have, were all sorted out, we thought. We said, okay, we enter a third car, strategic reasons during the race to be really on top of the Le Mans experience. And the car was, the cars were good, Spa, easy going. And the preparation for Le Mans, did we have a race before Spa? Was it Silverstone? Yeah, so easy going for us. We were confident we were there. Silverstone was a bit difficult, I think, because of the weather. Was it 16? Was the weather? Right at the end. Yes. Uh, But that was all fine for us. We were very confident that we should now take the more home. Mm-hmm. If we see the development of that race week, concerns started to come because we already started to make small mistakes uh, in the preparation and this was maybe related that we pushed three cars instead of two. Uh, it was maybe related that uh, still some people were not on the level but was a uh, part of the development process. It could also have been that yeah, we had too many pressure around us in order to do it. Akio Toyoda, our president, did come and appear there. So all was set for a great, for a great race. And then qualifying, Kamui with a miracle lap there, 314.793, I think, around about that. Very well remembered. Yeah. <coughs> uh, it was a great moment. Uh, never forget this. Um, did you expect it at the time? I know it's easy to yeah. So you yes. did expect to be able to I do had, that. I can say it now. I had a below three fifteen, and I did even tell this to a journalist that this would be possible. But he said, "Oh, you're crazy." I said, "But it was done by him." I was a bit surprised to be honest, because you normally like to push a bit the limits, and that he did it was sensational. So we said, "Okay, everything prepared well." But we had made mistakes, small mistakes, and if the race was developing, besides that we have made some own mistakes, we also had the support of the bad luck in this situation. Uh, we had strange, yeah, was strange things were happening, and from leading the race clear. Porsche being two seconds per lap off, off our pace. Uh, I think cars on one and two, and I think the car number nine at that time was running around on, on on fifth place. So we were strong. We were, yeah, we were there. And suddenly, car number eight had a failure. Came in. We say yes, what was no Loctite on the screw on the front hybrid system, the front motor. Uh, so out, not. But we took nearly an hour to, or one hour ten to change. This uh, uh, so out of out of the race. Uh, number seven uh, being strong, then having a silly incident where somebody moved, who was spotted as a marshal, to let him go on safety car situation uh, on track. So he started and he stopped again, and in that moment a mistake was made to start to drive with the clutch, which we normally don't do. We drive electric away and never with the clutch. Then already reported, hey, I have a problem on the car. Eh? The clutch was not correctly. You said if you have the clutch burned, then you get it in soon to the, ca- to, the, to the pit. We change this within 20 minutes and you can continue again. But it didn't happen. He didn't come back to the pit. Uh, so another one. And then, yeah, car number nine hits from behind by an LMP2. 
Also here, from my point of view, made some mistakes in hindsight is that the speed that he was returning to the pit was too high. Uh, the tire or exploded and mm. parts of the tire Remember, did, damage well. the, did, 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 did damage the car. So of what have, should have been a real perfect race, uh, yeah, it was for me in the end the biggest disaster we have seen in the last uh, eight seasons. But also some positive moments. And one of them was that our president, Akio Toyota, was there and he stayed until the end and he went on the podium, the LMP podium, not mm. the overall winner's podium. And there he became second yeah, because Porsche 1 was out, Porsche 2 did win. Uh, and we say uh, he went there and I think uh, he, should, he was not proud about what his team did. But he went up there and showed uh, that uh, yeah, he takes this very very tough moment and he stands up for what his team has at that moment has not done and this is from my side a great appreciation on the other side uh, yeah we had also experiences where the press was suddenly killing LNP1 it's over there is no future which I didn't understand why they were writing this because after that we had some great races and we had a very very sound victory in and Fuji a few seconds, 1.4, 1.6 seconds ahead of a Porsche car and an Audi car, and they were extremely upset that we were winning again. So from that point of view, uh, say 17 was for me a dark season in, in all the way. Then, yeah, what was sad is that also Porsche was pulling out, so we have never been able to beat Porsche in Le Mans, which is a frustrating item from my point of view. Uh, but it's yeah, it did happen, and uh, we say since then, the car is shorter. I think it's, from my point of view, the TSO50 is the most efficient car which went ever on the Le Mans circuit. We hope to prove this again in 2020. We won 18 and 19 uh, with, I think, a very impressive record. Fernando Alonso came to the team. Maybe he also with him he brought a bit of luck eh, which we didn't have in 17 because we would have some luck car 7 would have not been in the situation where it ended up into and, and with Fernando yeah the, the team was pushed also a bit to another level because somebody of his, his team with his palmares his background and his experience yeah motivates people and uh, also drivers uh, unfortunately at that moment not for Anthony Davidson who was uh, selected not to continue due to Fernando's position um, but we enjoyed, we we'll say, a very challenging 2018 season with uh, Fernando being under big pressure, coming from or driving with McLaren, were not so successful coming into our car, a huge pressure in Spa, uh, which we really had to fight hard because car number seven was quicker as car number eight during the whole race. And uh, we we'll say, I think also that Fernando made one very, very good move uh, and that was against car 7 because car 7 wanted to overtake car 8 uh, and Fernando gently blocked the car and the next lap they had to pit it and this was an important we say move an important uh, for me what we uh, could see in hindsight for f car number 8 including Fernando uh, to secure the, his first victory in, in the WEC Le Mans 2018 with Fernando in the car we have seen superb driving of all three drivers but especially from Fernando in the night Car 7 and Car 8 were battling each other. We saw also some, we say we didn't get the distance record yet. Hopefully we get this in 2019, depending a bit on the EOT. But uh, what we have seen there is that the quickest or the fastest ever stints was done by this car. Uh, I think it was car number 8. We have seen some very, very nice racing. So from that point of view, uh, yeah, I hope we can do some other 
interesting one in 2020 Le Mans. Now in 2018 in particular, from the outside, it, it looked easy. Give the listeners a sense of you know, the challenges of, of that race. You must have been slightly frustrated that there wasn't the competition, as you'd mentioned, with Porsche not being there. And the EOT, I think many would agree that it, it just it didn't create the competition, but still winning that race is, is unbelievably hard. I think, first of all, based on the EOT, there was a strong competition between our two cars. And I think this is a difficulty to handle if you are... We have in one team two cars which you have to manage which are racing against each other. <coughs> it's more difficult if you have a Porsche and two cars you have a, a, strategic, a strategic plan to win against a Porsche. But now you need to have a plan that both cars are treated equally and that they win for the team because both cars have to finish. So from that point of view, I don't think it was, was, e- was much easier. Um, I make a bit of an arrogant statement is that in 2016 and 2017, we didn't win, we let others, in this case Porsche, win them all. Because we did not our job good enough. Our cars were at all times able to beat the Porsche on pace, not on reliability. And this is something which I think we as a team have not done good enough. So in 2018, we had then the situation to get two cars across the finish line. Le Mans is a challenge for itself. In 17, we did beat ourselves. We were not beaten by a Porsche car, which was much quicker as us. Um, so from my point of view, yes, it is difficult to win 24 hours, but also it's difficult to win 24 hours in the way we did it, with we say, racing between two cars of the own team, plus we were able to put, we say, lap records on the race, and we put also a lap record, or we put also some uh, a record on the longest or the quickest stint we had. So from that point of view, I think uh, we have done a good job. Yes, and this is something we, we don't have to discuss or we don't have to fight about. It would have been much, much nicer if it would have been an Audi or Porsche or whoever on a similar level as we were. Mm. Yeah, and I guess looking back at 16 and, and 17, do you, do you look back um, uh, with, frust- with frustration, I guess, is probably the biggest emotion, but do you feel like you, you, there's so much to learn in years like that that you can take positives from it? Yes, that's, that's correct. We, we improved our processes, uh, especially after 17. We made some changes. We found out that the, one of our weak points is the distance between TMG and between Higachi Fuji, where we have two development centers. So we need to do a better job there, and I think we did this. Uh, 16 for me is it happened it's it's something which can happen it was the last one one and a half lap of the race so 16 was call it bad luck 17 was was not bad luck 17 was not good enough preparation and not uh, good enough management engineering uh, to handle three cars in Le Mans at that stage and yeah if you then are in a situation like this you are a bit of bad luck for me 16 is not so much of a problem mm. um, no no huge frustration because we all did well after we see where we came from 2016 uh, 15 to 16 we all did well 17 is a big frustration but we learned a lot out of it unfortunately uh, maybe uh, because of the pace which our car had. Uh, we even helped uh, Porsche a bit to, first of all, secure uh, due to our preparations and our work, they secured their third consecutive Le Mans win. And maybe we also showed, hey, if you want to come back in 18, you need to do a new car. Mm. Because your old car is two seconds a lap slower as, or your current car as our new car. Mm. So this was all then, to say, part of it, unfortunate. Mm. But okay, this is how our life is. Yeah, and I guess one one of the things we will look back on with this era is the progress in hydrogen technology. 
Oh, sorry, hybrid technology. Um, it's been staggering. From from your perspective on the inside of one of these teams that's, that's been here day to day, seeing this evolve, did, has this gone in places you didn't think it could go when, when, we, when we're talking about 2012 when this all began? Honestly, I think that due to the current regulations, they don't allow us to show what really is possible. Because, how would you say, the performance of our car, of our car is really hold back due to the EOT we have today. And the car has a new aero package, uh, so it would have made it even quicker. Eh? But we agree we need to have racing. Um, so what I would like to see happening, and maybe we can find an occasion where it happens, is to un- unleash the car and give it the full power uh, and the full performance envelope it has to deploy this at a Le Mans quick lap. That would have been or would be something I really would like to see because we are using significantly lesser, we don't talk about a few percent, we lose, use lesser than you know, 65% lesser as what as our current competitors run today. And the car is still holding back. So we are not allowed to let it free go. So I think there is much more to come. And we know that the car can do even much more, but we are, because of regulations, not, uh, not, uh, yeah, not possible to showcase this. So at the end of the season, what you're saying is you're going to do something similar to what Porsche did, which is take it to some circuits and see what lap times it can actually do, and it's not yes. held back. We are thinking very hard on doing this, <laughs> but it's at the present moment only thinking. Uh, but yes, I would like to see our full car, full car potential with good drivers in Le Mans. Uh, imagine Camus letting do another lap attack uh, there with completely unleashed TSO 50, T10. Mm. Would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, and before yeah, I that's l- maybe a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let us do it. <laughs> before I let you go, um, we're obviously on the precipice of hypercar. Really, it's all coming together very quickly. Um, and I want to get your thoughts on the position you're in now, because you know it's it's kind of a mirror image of what it was like in 2012. You're the mm-hmm. benchmark. You're the Audi of this era, mm-hmm. and you've got obviously Aston taking the role that you had mm-hmm. to take back in 2012. Yeah. Do you like? being in this position do you like that I mean you've got the pressure I guess of being the team that's been here and done that and is expected to come in with a car that's ready to rock instantly yes we say we need to be there and the car needs to run because of the experience we have although it all has been a very difficult process to get there where we are today um, I don't think we look at at this that we are the Audi uh, I don't think this is our our position. I think that we know that we are able to build a good car. We know that we're going into a new era where somebody like Aston Martin will give us a hard competition. Yes, we should be the benchmark. We should live up against this, uh, but also be humble because uh, we know that uh, at Aston Martin, very, very good engineers have developed the car. The car will be brought to the racetrack where people do know what they do, so we will nef- definitely not underestimate it. One thing which is for us new is BOP. We learn succession handicap this year, which I have to admit is difficult to learn because, uh, as I said before, you, s- you see the potential of the car kept back. Uh, you see the people working hard, which is a good, again, because they don't have to, they cannot relax. But BOP is something is that whatever car you come, it is balanced in each other. So, again, here the difference is not the pure performance of the car. It's, yes, it's a reliability. Yes, the, it, it, it are the systems which work well, so here we have a good experience. But anyway, it, has, it, it will come down to what the team is able to perform. And here we are performing against other professionals. So... Expecting from us to be winning every race would be very, very difficult because we have BOP. Mm. Rob, 
it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for your time and I, I wish you Merry Christmas and a, and a Happy New Year thank you Stefan same to you and uh, hopefully to see each other latest in Austin or yes, in Ring. I will be there in Austin good we see I'll each other see in Austin. thank you very much thanks once again to the fine folks at TMG Alistair Moffat for hosting young Stephen Kilby Mr. Batisti Monsieur Vassalon and Mr. Loipen as well for giving us a deeper insight a tour an audio tour and insight into so many things that they're working on at the moment that will be expressed both in SRO competition, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the full WEC calendar, and plenty more that will reach you through dailysportsguard.com. Thank you for listening once again and to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers.